verses 21 to 30 and 36 to 38. You can find this in your pew Bible, starting on page 900, and the following Jesus Bible, starting on page 1,158. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks to, God. be to God. If you have a little one's first grade and under, they can line up over here with Miss Brittany and our team. If you're visiting here with us and your children are not already registered with our volunteers, we just ask that one parent go back to get them signed in so we can make sure they're comfortable and safe and all that good stuff. It's a great migration. When I read the record of Jesus' last night on earth, I can't help but see a contrast between Judas and Peter. Why? Well, because on that night, Jesus showed remarkable love to each of them, and each of them in their own way took his love for granted. But in the end, one of them returned to Jesus and the other did not. What's the difference between these two men? And how should that inform the way that we respond to our own failures? God has shown every one of us grace. And we all take his grace for granted. So how can we make sure we're going to walk in the way of Peter and not in the way of Judas? Let's start by simply putting the two men in contrast narratively. Let's look at their two experiences in this story. One way that Judas and Peter were the same is this. As I said a second ago, Jesus showed remarkable, remarkable grace to both of them. Now, before you even get to today's text, Jesus has already shown them both grace. He's washed both of their feet. 
knowing how both of them would betray him, he still showed this remarkable act of kindness to both of them. And I encourage you to go back and listen to my sermon on that text a couple of weeks back if you didn't get a chance to listen to it. That's only the beginning, though, of Jesus' grace to these two men at this meal. Let's see first how he showed grace to Judas in particular. Look again at verses 21 through 29, which Amy read for us. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because, Jesus, or because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. I'll confess for a long time I've been very confused about how this story plays out, how all the different things that happen here play out. Like, how did the disciples not know that Judas was the betrayer when Jesus has just done this whole thing with the morsel of bread? Well, let me set the scene for you as best as I can understand it. So at special feasts like these in the first century, the host would often sit at the head of sort of a U-shaped table. And around this table, there were pillows where people could were guests, I know it sounds odd to us, but they would recline on one elbow so that they could eat with the other hand. And usually the host would have two people reclining on his left and his right, and they were guests of honor. Based upon how John describes the scene here, who are those guests of honor sitting by Jesus, the host of the meal? Definitely John, but possibly, this might be conjecture, possibly also Judas. Judas is close enough for Jesus to be able to hand the morsel to him. So it stands to reason that probably we've got John on one side and Judas, if not right next to him in a place of honor, pretty close to him. But with that scene set up, what occurs? Jesus has already announced in the meal his impending uh, departure, and he is now uh, prophesying his impending betrayal. So the disciples all look at one another across the table aghast, probably asking stuff like, it's not, it's not you, is it? Meanwhile, Peter, always the go-getter, has another approach. He kind of whispers, out, maybe he's sitting next to John, he whispers to John, hey, you're Jesus' confidant, get the scoop, ask him who it is. So John leans back to Jesus and whispers, Lord, who is it? How does Jesus respond? Look at verse 26. Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Jesus says this to John when John asks, probably as the other guys are still cross-talking across the table. So the others don't seem to hear that this morsel of bread is going to indicate who it is that's going to betray him. So John knows. Maybe he's confused by what this betrayal is. Maybe he's confused why Jesus says this and does this. But he's the author of this gospel, and he knows who the betrayer is going to be. Why doesn't he blurt it out to Peter? Why doesn't he blurt it out to the others? Well, we don't know. But Judas 
doesn't know the significance of the bread. Peter doesn't know. Nobody knows except for Jesus and John. Jesus confides in John who the betrayer will be. But why does Jesus hand him a piece of bread? Why not the guy I point at? Why not the guy I name to you? And then why doesn't Judas say, uh, no, no thanks, Jesus. I can, I can dip bread in the oil myself. It's because what Jesus does in giving this morsel of bread was considered a sign of honor at these kinds of feasts. Usually, if there was a choice piece of meat or bread or some kind of really delightful food on the table, the host would take it and give it to someone as an act of special honor to them. So Jesus, in taking this bread and giving it to Judas, is actually a sign of appreciation and love. He's giving special honor to Judas over the others. Why would, Judas, or why would Jesus do this? In giving this choice piece of bread to Judas, it's almost like Jesus has given him a last chance. He's inviting him one more time to trust him, to know his love, to repent, and to be cleansed. But how does Judas respond? Does he repent of his plotting and his anger toward Jesus? Is he softened by Jesus' grace? No, it seems as though Judas is further hardened by this sign of love and affection. Because what does the text say? Look at verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Judas's heart is so hardened against Jesus and against his grace that he rejects his last chance to respond to Jesus in faith. If you look in the front of your worship guide, I have a quote from D.A. Carson's commentary on this text that I thought was helpful. Carson said, Judas received the sop, but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened his resolve. The important thing to see here, though, is that Jesus showed remarkable grace to Judas, even to the end. But let's not forget we're looking at a contrast between Judas and Peter. How did Jesus show grace to Peter at this meal? Well, several times he's told them that he's going to be leaving. And in response to that, Peter asks a question. Look at verses 36 and 37. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus' answer to Peter's question is a powerful act of love. Well, how so? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter didn't hear the second half of what Jesus said. Instead, Peter asked, well, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. If Peter had paid attention to the second part, he would have heard a powerful statement of grace. Jesus said, you will follow me afterward. What did that mean? Well, where's Jesus headed? First, he's headed to the cross. But after that, he'll be raised from the dead to live with his father in heaven. Do any of you know how Peter would eventually die? I see nods. You can say it. Yeah, he'd be crucified. 
When they said they were going to crucify Peter, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified by my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. He would follow Jesus afterward to the cross, to his own cross. And when he died, where would he go? To be with Jesus, with his father forever. Peter would follow Jesus afterward. So closely, no one ever could have guessed how he would have walked in his feet. Peter, Peter, if only you could know the grace that Jesus was speaking to you in that moment. Jesus is telling him, Peter, you will follow me, just not now. Peter, you will follow me so faithfully. You'll walk so closely in my steps, it'll make you uncomfortable. You will follow me, Peter. You'll follow me forever. Jesus heaped grace upon grace upon grace on Judas and Peter in this last meal together. That's one way that they're the same. But let's see another commonality between the two men. Both men not only ignored or opposed his grace here in the moment, but they would also publicly reject his grace. Of course, this part of the story, I I think you know quite well. Uh, Judas didn't respond to Jesus' grace with faith and repentance. He went out and betrayed Jesus to his enemies. Likewise, Peter Earlier in the story, he tried to keep Jesus from washing his feet. Then here, he totally misses Jesus' words of grace. He doesn't hear him at all. And then, before the rooster would crow at sunrise, Peter would deny Jesus publicly three times. Both men are shown grace, and both men rejected that grace, not only privately, but also publicly. And this is where the contrast between these two men is very important for you and me. Because Jesus has shown all of us grace upon grace upon grace. And every one of us has ignored that grace and taken that grace for granted privately and publicly in varying ways. Every time we sin, as we saw earlier, we're choosing to ignore his grace and and to do our own thing. But there's a difference between these two men. One of them repents and is restored to Jesus. And the other repents does not. We need to know the difference between these two men so that when we sin, we go in the way of Peter and not in the way of Judas. And that's a third aspect of this comparison that I want to draw out. In the end, Peter is restored to Jesus, but Judas dies in despair apart from Jesus. I'm not going to unpack that part of the story for sake of time. If you'd like to read those texts for yourself, they're in your worship guide. You could spend some time this afternoon prayerfully reading those. Regardless, Peter repents and is restored to Jesus, but Judas does not. Last week, we looked at John 16, where Jesus said this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Judas was falling away. And Jesus didn't want the other 11 to fall away. And Jesus' concern for the 11 is a concern we hear throughout the New Testament. New Testament authors are telling people, when it gets hard, don't fall away. Don't walk away from Jesus. This isn't going to be easy. There are going to be pressures in this life that will make you want to walk away from Jesus, to deny him privately and publicly. So also, like Jesus and the New Testament authors, this sermon to you is to tell you, It's going to be hard to follow Jesus. It will be costly. There will be pressures that will make you want to walk, to just give up, to do it privately and publicly. 
By looking at this contrast of Judas and Peter, it can help protect you and me from falling away like Judas did. And here's a principle to learn from this contrast. What we love steers our lives. This we see very clearly in Peter and Judas. What we love steers our lives. Why did Judas reject Jesus on this night, both privately and publicly? Why did Peter reject Jesus? It's because of what they loved. What we love steers our lives. The choices that these two men made were ultimately driven by what they loved. In the crucial moment of decision, they loved something else more than they loved Jesus. In John 12, we see that Judas had a deep love of money that put him at odds with Jesus. In the end, what does he trade Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. What he loved steered his life choices. And in John 18... When Peter crumbles and forsakes Jesus in front of servants and officers of the Romans, what did he love then? Well, he probably was loving some kind of combination of self-preservation and the high opinion of others. Regardless in that moment, he loved himself, his welfare, his social standing more than he loved Jesus. In that moment, what he loved steered the choice that he made. Likewise, what we love steers our lives. And a wise Christian pays attention to the things that they love the most. Why? Because those are the things that most easily become idols that we love more than Jesus. Judas and Peter had some deep-seated desires, some loves that were buried deep down. And in the moment of decision, they erupted forth and really made a mess of things. Likewise, we need to pay attention to things we love the things we want, the things that motivate us to do what we do. Augustine of Hippo put it this way. Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. He's got them all covered in that paragraph. Not everything that you love or desire is of equal value. Let's think about Peter. Is it wrong to desire the high opinion of others? What do you think? No, it's not wrong. Can it be dangerous, though? Most definitely. Just like desiring money. Jesus himself said that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So we have to pay attention to the things we love. Now, if I were to go around the room and ask you, what do you love? Who do you love? You would no doubt have answers. But if I ignored what you said you loved, I could figure out what you love. Just by looking at the decisions you make. Every time we make a decision, we are choosing one love, one desire over all the others. Do you realize how many decisions you make every single day? You start making decisions from the moment you wake up. Are you going to hit the snooze button? That's decision number one for me, and I did today. <laughs> That's a decision point. 
Then you got to decide, what are you going to eat for breakfast? Another decision. What are you going to wear? Are you going to take time to pray? Are you going to read the scriptures? How will you do your work? How will you spend your free time? How will you respond to your annoying coworker? How will you respond to your family member? When will you go to bed? Every day, we make decision after decision after decision after decision. And every time, it's a question of what do you love? What are you going to desire? What are you going to pursue? What are you going to want the most? And every decision we make is an opportunity to love God and to love what he loves or to love what our flesh and the world love. Now, clearly, Judas and Peter made the wrong call. They loved money. They loved opinion. They loved self-preservation more than they loved Jesus. How can you and I possibly expect to do any differently? Are we not driven by our desires? It's true that what we love steers our lives, but Christian, Christian, filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiven of your sins, given a new heart, you are not bound to love the things of the flesh. You are not bound to love the things of the world. Remember the scripture we memorized just a few weeks ago? You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. What that means is, Christian, you can live differently. You can love differently. You can choose differently. Let's think it through, though. A wise Christian discerns, with God's help, the relative value of their many loves. So you have desires, wants, loves, goals that might be good, but are not the best. Some of our desires, even powerful ones, may be completely wrong, as in sinful, not for you. For you to fulfill those desires would not only be sin, it would be against your very nature as a human created in God's image. Not all desires are equally righteous, ordinate, or wise. Therefore, a Christian checks their loves. When you're faced with a decision, you can pause and ask, what are the desires that are wanting to be fulfilled in this decision? What loves are competing right now? And which love am I going to side with? Will I choose to love God? Will I love what he loves? Or will I love what my flesh and the world loves? And then with God's help, you can choose the higher love. But Only God can awaken our hearts to love the best things. And only God's word can teach us what loves are best. This isn't something you just need to think real hard about and spend a lot of time chewing on. You need God's word to show you what loves are best. And only God can awaken you to love those things. Now, at the risk of ruining a sermon in a couple weeks, Jesus says later in this, this conversation with his disciples this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit And so prove to be my disciples. 
This is the difference between Judas and Peter. This is the difference between someone who sins and comes back and someone who sins and falls away, abiding in Jesus. How do we grow a heart that loves the right things? How do we develop the the strength of will to choose higher loves rather than fleshly loves? If you've never asked that, you don't know your sin very well yet. You don't know the difficulty of desiring to obey Jesus when everything in your flesh and everything in the world is telling you to do the opposite. So how can we have the spiritual strength and stamina to love what God loves and to love God rather than to crumble to the pressure of the flesh and the world? There's only one answer. Draw near to Jesus. Abide in Jesus. The one who has shown you grace upon grace upon grace. There's no trick There's no discipline that you need to put in place so that your love changes. No, meditate on Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Soak in his words. Revel in his gospel. Believe him and repent and daily let him wash your feet. What we love steers our lives, so we must abide in Jesus. And as we are with him and meditating on him and in relationship with him, He and his love will grow to satisfy us more and more and more so that we so desire Jesus, every other love seems like trash in comparison. We must seek to know Jesus and to abide in him. If you want to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost or pressure, your constant posture, moment by moment, must be one of faith and repentance. Run to Jesus and rest in his love. The solution to our problem, the problem of our will, of our loves, of our decisions, the the solution is not law. It's not heaping guilt and expectation on ourselves. No, the answer is to be loved by Christ. We love because he first loved us. So when you sin, flee to Jesus in repentance experience his grace, be loved by him, listen to him, and he will change your loves. I encourage you. Mm, we got a chili cook-off. Why not? John 21. I just want you to see Peter. Peter, after he denies Jesus, the night of Jesus' death, uh, he doesn't come face to face with Jesus, except in the crowd with the, with the other disciples. But in John 21, we see the moment where Peter flees to Jesus. So John 21, they've been out fishing all night. They caught nothing. So verse 4, John 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And all there, though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come. Peter sees the Lord. It's really hilarious. Like, why would you put on your robe when you're about to jump in the water, man? Why, you're really close. Why not just wait? It's because he couldn't wait to get to Christ. And what did he find when he got there? His Savior's arms were wide open. Sinners, brothers, sisters, this is the solution. Know that Christ's arms are open to you when you sin, when you choose other loves. And flee to him. Rest in him. Abide in him. He will love you and cultivate in you such a love for him. It'll be amazing. You'll start to find yourself at decision points. And you won't even want to love the things of the flesh and the world. Because you so love Jesus. Repent. Delight in his love. And then make your choice. When we are resting in the love of Christ, we can't sin. As Augustine said, love God and do what you will. What you love steers your life. And I know you, I know me, our loves are often mixed, impure, confused, and confounding. Often we don't know what we want or why we make the choices we do. Judas and Peter in the heat of the moment probably weren't aware of why they were doing what they were doing. I do the same thing. You do too. But continuing in that way is immaturity. Not knowing our desires, not knowing why we do what we do, continuing in that way is foolishness, it's childishness. Brothers and sisters, it's time to grow up. It's time to be aware of our desires, of our loves, of our drives, and to submit them to Christ. But how? By reveling and resting in his love purchased for us in the cross. What Judas could not do and what Peter eventually would do by daily trusting his gospel, repenting, and finding God's love in Christ to be our highest desire and our highest satisfaction. So brothers and sisters, be loved by Christ. Fall in love with Christ and then follow your heart. What you love steers your life. So love the one who loves you. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends here, and I ask that you, in the way that only you can, would so powerfully express the love of Jesus to them, that they would be forever changed, that Christ would be their highest joy, their highest satisfaction, their greatest love, and that by loving him foremost, all of their loves fall into their right order. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.